Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening. We pray just a spirit of freedom, of protection, of health, of vitality, of spiritual encounter tonight, Lord, in this place. We ask that your Holy Spirit would anoint this place in this time, that you would keep us safe, that you would keep us um, just open and ready and willing to encounter you in new ways, to listen and to hear your voice speak to us. We pray, Lord, for um, all those who may still be on their way, all those things that are on our hearts, that you would just um, allow us to lay all those things at your feet tonight. I'll lay this time at your feet, that you would um, allow us to be attentive to your word. So as we read, Lord, help us to empty our minds and thoughts of all of the worries of today of this week and let your voice speak to us. Guide us in this time and allow it to be fruitful. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So tonight, as I said, we are in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 53. Luke 12, 49 to 53. And it's a shorter passage, so we're going to uh, read, read it two or three times. Um, and as we read it this first time, just get a sense for what is being said here. This is one of the more difficult passages to hear. It doesn't sound very Jesus-y, um, so we'll get into it. But this is a, uh, a time when Jesus is continuing to be on the way to Jerusalem. He's done his ministry up in Galilee. He's on his way to Jerusalem through this whole middle section of the Gospel of Luke. And he's encountered a group of followers and some Pharisees. And so he's in the midst of these different teachings and this continues right after what we just heard in last week's gospel, okay? So this is immediately after that, a different section. Um, but he was just talking about the vigilant and faithful servants being ready, staying awake, making sure that we are prepared for that moment when the Lord comes or when our life ends to, um, to face Jesus. And this is what follows. Luke 12, starting in verse 49. I have come to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already blazing. There is a baptism with which I must be baptized, and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, a household of five will be divided, three against two and two against three. A father will be divided against his son and a son against his father, a mother against her daughter and a daughter against her mother, a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Real chipper gospel there, yeah? 
It's a hard word. So we're going to read this a second time. And as we do this a second time, now that you get a sense for what is being said here, try and uh, pay attention only to the words okay, that are being said. Not to interpret them theologically, but to just listen, empty your mind of everything else, and see if a particular word or phrase just strikes you for any reason. If it stands out. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage. Maybe it reminds you of something going on, something you've been praying about, poses a question in your mind, challenges you in some way, whatever it is. Pay attention to that. You can underline it, write it down, reflect on it, and especially ask the question, why, Lord, is this standing out to me? What are you trying to say to me? What are you asking me to do? Second time through, Luke 12, 49. I have come to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already blazing. There is a baptism with which I must be baptized, and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, a household of five will be divided. Three against two and two against three. A father will be divided against his son and a son against his father. A mother against her daughter and a daughter against her mother. A mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And since it's shorter, I'm going to read this a third time. Just continue to reflect or search for whatever it is that is standing out. Luke 12, 49. I have come to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already blazing. There is a baptism with which I must be baptized. And how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, a household of five will be divided. Three against two and two against three. A father will be divided against his son and a son against his father. A mother against her daughter and a daughter against her her mother, a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And so now that we've read that through a few times, I invite you to just reflect over those words. If anything in particular stood out to you, feel free to share that with the people around you or any questions that this poses. We're going to do this at the table for five to ten minutes, and then we'll bring it back to the larger discussion. If you're watching on Zoom, you can do that in the chat or in YouTube on the, in the comments. Uh, if you're listening to this in podcast form, you can do that as well in comments. But here, uh, for those of us here, we'll just take about five, ten minutes and share, and we'll bring it back to the larger group. All right. <laughs> What are some of the things that are standing out? What are some of the questions? I'm sure there's lots of questions. This is kind of a difficult passage, even though it's short. Uh, some of the questions or reflections that are standing out to you. We need guidance. Yes, <laughs> in what? Right. Any specific? Yeah, Greg. Not that long ago, you gave a definition of the word peace. Mm -hmm. It's not like a shaking your hands kind of peace. It's like you breathe peace on someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a calmness with that. Yeah. And we get to this gospel and all hell breaks loose. Yeah. This is one of the most violent gospels I think we read. Mm. 
there's no peace in this gospel. No. It's just so anti versus what so much of what we see of Jesus being a unifier of faith and following him and all that. So mm -hmm. that sense of peace that you told us before was very profound. That just kept coming up when I read this. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and there's an important distinction here between peace. There's a peace that's the absence of war and conflict that we typically think about like politically. That's not the peace Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is talking about a shalom peace, a kind of wholeness and integration of you know a whole life being ordered toward the Lord. Um, and it there's another verse that can kind of help put this in context a little bit, and this is in John 16. This is one of one of my favorite verses because it's very funny. Um, Jesus says, this is in John 16, it's at the very end, uh, and starting in verse, let's see, um, 32. He says, Behold, the hour is coming and has arrived, when each of you will be scattered to his own home, and you will leave me alone. But I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have told you this, so that you might have peace in me. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage, I have conquered the world. He says, I tell you this, so that you'll have peace, you're going to have trouble. Like, wait a minute, what did you say? Like, I thought you were bringing peace. And so when we recognize the peace Jesus is offering is one that is properly ordered, one that recognizes, like, if my life is devoted to the Lord, if Jesus is the center of my life, that doesn't mean that my life is going to be free of conflict, free of difficulty, free of struggle. That's not what it means. It means that in the difficulty, in the struggle, in the conflict, there is still purpose. There's still direction. There's still a grounding and a rootedness in Jesus Christ, in what matters, in a relationship with God. And when we respond that way, when we follow God wholeheartedly, it demands a response from those around us. Doesn't it? If we do it right, if we're living our faith right, if we're living it out loud, other people are going to take notice. And they're either going to agree and affirm it, or they're going to disagree and will face persecution. That is where the division comes from. That is why Jesus is talking about that division will come, because it's a natural byproduct of people making a decision about Jesus Christ and choosing to be set apart from the rest of the world. It's a natural consequence. When we decide, I'm going to live differently, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm not going to do what everyone else is doing, that is going to elicit some type of response from the rest of the world. Because our faith is meant to be lived out loud. It's not meant to be kept in some small corner of our life. And so naturally, there will be division. So hopefully that sheds a little bit of light as to what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about this in a, in a vindictive way, like, I've come to divide all your families. <laughs> like, no. What he's saying is, like, if you recognize who I am and why I came, then peace cannot just happen. You know, what I'm coming to do, people will need to make a choice about. And that will bring some kind of division in families, in relationships, because they're all going to have to choose. Yeah. Well, it also seems to me, but which I'm not sure if I'm right, that he is expressing tremendous dread about the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And that he wishes it was already ablaze. He wishes it was already over. He wishes mm -hmm. he didn't have to go through this. And then, like you said, um, he's dividing people because some will follow him and some will say, no, he's not the Messiah. You have to wait for the right one and all yeah. this. And um, so it, it is it is causing discord for sure. Yeah. But I think it, a part of it 
is kind of an anguish and dread about the crucifixion. Yeah. And isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't it great that we have a God who knows what it's like to be anxious, to feel anguish? You know, if you think about every other, throughout all of history, if you think about the Roman gods, like, is Zeus ever, like, having an off day? Just Zeus is just kind of depressed today. Like, no, like, Zeus is this big, valiant idea of some Greek god, you know, who cares nothing of humanity other than them worshiping him. But the one true god came to live a human life, to have a human likeness, to experience human experience, so that even in our darkest moments, in our best moments, in our most uh, moments, moments of greatest fear, we know we would have a God who relates to us, who can meet us there, who knows what that experience is like. You know, have you ever had a conversation when you're kind of sharing with someone what you're going through, and the other person you know has no idea, and they're like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. You know? Like, you know, you, you've lost a family member, and they're like, yeah, when I was three, I lost my cat, and it was just tragic. You're like, no, like, you have no idea. Like, we don't have a God like that. We have a God who knows the depth of human experience. And part of the place we see this is in Luke 22 when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in verse, uh, verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Still not my will, but yours be done. And then it says, and to strengthen him, an angel from heaven appeared to him. He was in such agony that he prayed so fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. That's a real physical condition is called hematohydrosis, where your capillaries break down uh, because you're so stressed, so anxious, and you begin to sweat blood. Blood begins to come out of your pores. It's a real scientific condition that can happen to people. That's how much anxiety and anguish Jesus was experiencing. And yet, he wholeheartedly, fully chose to follow through with the decision to do what he came to do, to die on the cross for our sins. And what a gift that he lived a human life. He can relate to us in every sense of the word. And yet, despite having that depth of human emotion and that fear, followed through. When so many times it's easy for us to not follow through because we're so easily afraid when it comes to persecution, when it comes to uh, living out our faith, when it comes to trusting God, not being in control, etc. Such a great example we have of God relating to us in every type of moment. Yeah. The baptism Jesus is speaking about in this passage here. Yeah. It seems to me it's not John and Jordan. I mean, this has to be a metaphor for something else. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yes, absolutely. So, um, the baptism of John the Baptist in the Jordan, um, it was a baptism of repentance of sins. Okay, so it's an acknowledgement like I've sinned. And I think we've talked about this at Bible study before, that this, this didn't really exist, what John was doing. Okay, so the Jews had like ceremonial washings to purify themselves for certain things, but it, it did, never had anything to do with repenting of their sins. It was just to make them, you know, able to perform a sacrifice, make sure the sacrifice was clean and that they were, you know, um, going through some kind of symbolic purification. The only kind of cleansing ritual that existed at this time was for non-Jews. And if they converted to Judaism... They went through this kind of, you know, bathing, cleansing ritual in order to be purified and to become part of, you know, the covenant. This was Jews experiencing that kind of conversion, that kind of repentance from sin. And so it, it is a foreshadowing of the baptism that we have sacramentally. But what Jesus is speaking about is the deeper end of our baptism. The baptism he's talking about is death. 
Are you ready to be baptized with the, bapti the baptism that I am, you know, um, what does he say? There is a baptism with which I must be baptized, and great is my anguish. Okay, if it was just like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, dunk my head in the water, and there's going to be oil on me, that does not really promote a lot of anguish. You know, it's kind of a very peaceful, you know, nice, pretty ceremony. But he's talking about death. And in the theology of baptism, that's what it means. That's what baptism is. There is a, a, sim, a symbolism of drowning. You're being plunged into the water as if you, your old self is dying, and you are being risen out of that water, a new creation. That's the symbol of baptism, this immersion. We've talked about this before. Remember I talked about the pickle recipe? Did I talk about that here? Pickles? No? Oh my gosh, this is the best, you guys. Okay, so, so the word for baptism in Greek is baptizian, and it means to dunk or immerse. But there's another Greek word, bapto, that means the same thing. They both mean to dip, to immerse. And so it was kind of hard to determine what these things meant. And then uh, scholars or you know, archaeologists, they found an ancient pickle recipe. Okay, And in this recipe, it said that you take a cucumber and you dip it, bapto, in boiling water, and then you pull it back out, okay? And then you submerge it, baptizian, the word for baptism, in vinegar, and then you leave it. When it comes out, is it a cucumber anymore? No, it's a pickle, it's something else entirely. But when the cucumber goes in the boiling water and it comes out, is it still a cucumber? Yes. Yeah, if you don't know how pickles are made, there you go. I hate pickles, so this is kind of gross. But, <laughs> but in essence, like I hope that every time you see a pickle now, you will think of this because, in essence, that's what's happening. To be baptized is not just to be dipped in the water and come out the same. It's to be dipped in the water like a cucumber is pickled, and you come out something else entirely. So this sense of like, Jesus, like, like pickle me, like make me something new. Make me a new creation. That is what baptism is all about. It's dying. That's why most baptismal fonts look like tombs. You ever notice that? Like it looks like a nice fountain, but when you see it empty, you know, on Holy Thursday or Good Friday, it looks like a tomb. You just slide a lid over it, and that's what it looks like. You can lay down in there. That's what it symbolizes. It symbolizes death to the world, death to self, rising anew. And Jesus takes that to the furthest degree that he possibly could, actually literally dying for us, as an example of what it would mean to follow him, to be willing to die. And yes, we're not asked to die in these horrific ways like Jesus did, but we're asked to die to our temptations for the world, the flesh, the devil, the things that draw us away from the Lord, so that we will be a new creation in him. That's why he says, I wish, I wish it was already like this. Wish y'all already did this. But he knows that sin is a part of the world. Sin is a part of our story. And that the wages of sin is death. That if we sin, the consequence of that is death and destruction. Jesus knew he, that we couldn't fix that. And so he became human to fix a human problem that no other human could fix. He rescued us. And that is why we do everything that we do. Because he utterly and completely changed our lives doing that, dying for our sins. That is why it demands a choice. It demands a response. And that response will often lead to division in families and relationships and how we experience the world, etc. Other questions, other things stand out for you? Yeah, Miguel. Uh, there were fire in this passage. Yeah. Um, 
Is he using it more figuratively or uh, literally? Um, I mean, I think he's using it symbolically. Um, fire often in scripture uh, either means purification or judgment, usually. Um, so there, there's numerous instances in like Leviticus, or I think of one instance in the book of Numbers, where um, they go out to battle and the soldiers are, are impure and they come back and they're instructed to anything that can go in the fire that won't be burned, anything that can go in the fire to be purified, do that. So it's kind of a purification thing. But if you remember then uh, the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings, uh, fire is called down from heaven in judgment against the prophets of Baal or later on against the, the soldiers of King um, Azariah, people who come and are trying to um, destroy or uh, kill Elijah. And so that, that one particular instance, first, it's in 1 Kings 18, where there's like 400 prophets of the, the pagan god Baal, and they're all dancing around this altar trying to get it to set on fire. And Elijah's like teasing that. He's like, maybe your God's asleep. I don't know. Your altar's not setting on fire. And then it's his turn, and he pours water on the altar. Just like, watch this. And then all of a sudden, he asks God to rain down fire. And fire comes down, not only proving God's existence, but then in judgment against the prophets of Baal, and they're all killed for their idolatry, for not following the Lord. Um, and so that, that happens all throughout the Old Testament. And so fire seen as a symbol for purification and for judgment. How I wish that the world was already ablaze, meaning wish the world was already kind of purified for his judgment, that we were all ready to face him, that we didn't have this consequence of sin. In the original Greek, these two sentences, uh, the first word of the first sentence is fire, and the first word of the second sentence is baptism. So there's an emphasis in Greek on those two words, fire and baptism. And that might... Um, ring a bell, because at the very beginning of this gospel, in Luke chapter 3, what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? He says, one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So obviously when we get baptized, it's not like a flamethrower, like you're not actually singed or burned. So it's obviously a symbol, but it is a symbol of purification. He is coming not only to purify, not only to bring his judgment over our life so that we will be judged good and worthy, but also this fire of the Holy Spirit. Fire which symbolizes all throughout the scripture, um, the Holy Spirit, that we would be animated by the Holy Spirit. All of that is kind of at play here in that first verse. It reminds me of that quote by St. Catherine of Siena, where she says, be who, God, be who God created you to be and you will set the world ablaze. You ever heard that? Be who God created you to be, and you will set the world ablaze. St. Catherine of Siena. It's a similar, similar idea. Other questions? Yes, Eva. Wasn't there some very, I don't remember, but it was somebody about being faithful and tested as a golden fire? Yes, in the crucible of, yeah, something like that. I can't remember where that verse is. I had a friend who always used to quote that. It was his favorite verse. And I never wrote it down. I, I want to say it's in Ecclesiastes. Um, I, I think. I, if you just like look up crucible, like where it is in the Bible, you'll probably find it. Because it's a very not often used word. But I just never have taken the time to commit that verse to memory. But yeah, it's a similar concept. Just as um, metal is tested in the crucible, purified in the crucible, so are we pure. Or something like that. It's very blacksmithy. He was a... He's like a big dude. He likes like blacksmithing and stuff. So he would always quote that as his favorite verse. So 
I always think of him when I think of that. So, yeah, if someone can find it, let me know, because I'd love to know what it is. I, I want to say it's in Ecclesiastes, but I could be wrong. Maybe wisdom. Yeah? Do we have similar passages in the other evangelists? Um, you know, I looked that up, and I, I don't... Let me see here if I have a note about it. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, maybe in Matthew. Yes, in Matthew 10. Verse 34 and 35, I believe, is, is the parallel to this. And it might be the exact same. Yeah, Jesus a cause of division. And here, and the way it's written in here, it's clear that Matthew is quoting something from the Old Testament. It's Matthew 10, 34. Yeah. And so this section where he says a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, that's actually from the Old Testament. That's in the prophet Micah, prophet Micah chapter 7. And Micah was a prophet that was preaching uh, during the time of, uh, like right before they were going into exile. He's preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's basically saying, like, this is what's going to happen as a result of all that you're doing, as a result of all your idolatry. A son will belittle the father, a daughter will rise up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and your enemies are members of your household. And then it says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. So this is essentially quoting that prophecy from Micah about how sin can bring division. Sin can bring division in a family, but we turn to the Lord for our identity. What Jesus is doing here is he's kind of turning it around and saying, not only does sin divide, so does uh, division also happens when you choose grace. When you choose to live a life of faith. That will also happen. That will also be a result. And so no matter what the choice, we will face kind of uncomfortable situations in life. The real danger is to be in the middle. Right? Revelation 3.16, I would rather you be hot or cold. For you, if, but if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And yet it's so easy to be comfortable in the middle, right? Like, oh, I don't want to shake any feathers. I don't want to put my religion on anyone else. I don't want to be vocal about it because I want to respect what everyone else believes, but I'll just kind of be Catholic on my own. No, that's not what it means to be set apart from the world. Other people should know by the way we live our life. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you were convicted of being a Catholic in a court of law, would there be enough, or if you were accused, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you're accused of being a Catholic in a court of law, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Our faith should be visible, should be lived out loud in both word and action. Both word and action. We can't hide behind the assumption that, oh, people will see what I'm doing and assume. No, like we need to vocalize it. It's part of the responsibility of the disciple to evangelize, and that means a verbal proclamation to someone else about the message of God. That God created us out of love, and sin separates us from that love and his plan, but Jesus came to redeem us. And because of that gift, we can live in the life of love and God's plan for us that was taken away by sin. And it's the best possible life we could live. Who wouldn't want to know that? Who wouldn't want to respond to that? But we are charged to live in response to that and to share that message with others. And because of that, as I've been saying, that will promote or result in sometimes division. Sometimes people not liking what we have to say, not wanting or ready to hear it. Yeah? So the first few familial relations kind of like make 
make sense to me. Uh -huh. But why? What's the significance behind, if any, like mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and why not father-in-law? Yeah, -in -law? isn't it interesting the the relation? So, like, we have a household of five, right? And there's five different dynamics here, five different relationships. Okay, there's a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, and we assume the spouse of the son, a daughter-in-law. That's a household of five. And it points out all these interrelationships, but pay attention to the ones that are not mentioned. Okay? And I find this very interesting because this is very true. Um, a, a father against son, but is father against daughter? No. Because we all know that there's daddy's little girls out there and mama's little boys, right? And there's this, it's true, right? When you're growing up, especially when you are leaning into this like identity of like, I want to make a decision about the things I believe, when you're in that kind of very formative state, you tend to butt heads the most with your same-sex parent, right? I butted heads with my dad constantly growing up. And my mom I could chat to about like my whole day and we would have full-on conversations. My dad and I would just yell at each other about nothing sometimes, you know? Sometimes we'd be arguing about geography. We'd have to get out the atlas and he would like be pulling pages out and be so mad that I think, thought I knew where Michigan was or whatever. I don't know, it's just random stuff, you know? Um, but that's true, isn't it? There's almost this natural type of recognition they're putting here. Not to say that those other relationships aren't valuable, but it's almost acknowledging this kind of natural dynamic that happens. Uh, and also, you know, out, people outside of the marriage in your family, breaking into the marriage, being divided against your spouse or something like that. But notice what's not mentioned. Brother against sister, because that's the familial relationship we have as Christians. We see each other as brothers and sisters. And spouses. Husband against wife are not divided. And now I know the reality of that is not necessarily experienced in the world. Sometimes in marriages we have one who believes and one who's very much against it. And that's a very difficult cross for a married couple to bear. Sometimes it can result in divorce. Sometimes it can be a huge source of contention between families. But the ideal here when it comes to Jesus talking about, I'm, I'm kind of reading into this a bit, but I think it's a way we can interpret it. Jesus is talking about all the ways division can be at play I think it's important to notice the ways that he's assuming it won't be. And that's in a marriage, in a family. Because the household really is the building block of society. A family, a marriage, that's stability, that's security. That's what everything else is based off of. That's why the church, as part of the, the um, seven components of Catholic social teaching, one of them is the call to family and community, to protect the, uh, the identity and the structure of the family and not seek to pull it apart. And yet we live in a world where that's the opposite is true, right? Uh, autonomy is encouraged for young people. People's parenthood are being taken away because their children want to make certain decisions that they're not mature enough yet to make. All these things are kind of being ripped apart. And yes, if there's a toxic situation or an abusive situation, that should be intervened, obviously. But like kind of traditional Christian values within the family, depending on where you are, if you're just teaching your kids certain things and someone else hears about it, they could call CPS and they, your kids could be taken away from you. Just in some states, that's just a reality. Like, and that's completely against what the gospel stands for and what the church stands, stands for, that we want to honor the sanctity and the sacredness of the family as the basic building block of society. So the question here really is, does Jesus want division? No. But he's saying, because of what he's doing, he is naturally going to bring it. Because we are all going to have to make a decision. We are all going to have to choose to recognize, is this person really the Messiah, the Son of God, or is he not? And if he is, 
that radically changes the trajectory of your life and how you live as a result. And if it doesn't, if you don't believe that, then you live probably the way the world does, and that is radically different than the life that we're called to as Christians. And so there will naturally be division. So when he says, I did not come to establish peace on earth, it means he did not come to establish a kind of political state that is free of conflict, free of even war or violence, because Jesus won't you know, uh, take over our free will. We can still choose to do those things. What he's acknowledging is, I'm coming to provoke a response, a choice, because I have a specific mission that I will not turn from, and that will change the world. We'll all have to, and hopefully we've all decided. It's a good question for us as we reflect on this passage over the course of this next week. Have I made a choice? And is that apparent in the way I live my life? Was there a definitive moment where I encountered the Lord and I was like, yes, I want to live my life differently? Does my life look that different now than it did before I had that encounter? Or am I still kind of doing the same things, struggling with the same things, I have the same temptations or habits toward anger or toward lust or toward greed or whatever it might be? We should look and be acting radically different because what Jesus did for us was, was radical. It was incredible. Deepa, you had your hand up back there? Yeah. So the word in Greek is irene, and the Hebrew word for irene for peace is shalom. So it is that same word. They would be seen as synonyms across languages. So, um, so yes, so um, shalom, that kind of um, sense of wholeness, sense of peace. But there isn't necessarily in Hebrew or Greek a distinction between these two types of peace that I'm talking about. So even though the word is used, based on the context, we would interpret it as Jesus saying, just not the absence of conflict. But when he talks about shalom elsewhere, it's what Greg brought up earlier, that sense of wishing someone wholeness. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's a sense of a completely integrated self. And even though there's division that's happening, when we really recognize that Jesus is Lord and we want to pursue him, then we do have peace. Kind of like that passage I read from John where he says, in your life you'll have trouble, but I tell you this so you'll have peace. It's like, hey, just be aware. Life's not going to be perfect. But keep your eyes fixed on me and everything else will make sense. Maybe not right in that moment, if you're paying attention to the waves crashing around you, but if you keep your eyes fixed on me, like Peter walking on the water to Jesus, then all of a sudden the waves don't matter anymore. Other questions, thoughts? Yes? Can you explain the significance behind the numbers that are listed, five, three, and two, and like what? side or each of the three and like two on in this case? Yeah, so um, five, anytime you see the word five in scripture, remember Hebrew is a numerological language, so every, every um, number has a letter designation, every letter has a number designation. Often when you see the word five in scripture, it represents the Torah, because there's five books in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so whenever you see that kind of five, it's kind of pointing back to the Old Testament, the way things were, the way things God kind of established his covenant with us. The division there, I think, is just a natural division between two and three because it's the only division you can have instead of one to four. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say that, which means that even when we do choose to follow him, we will never be alone in that choice. There will always be two. You know, just like it says, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there amongst, in, in the midst of that. 
So even though you're making the choice, even though it may seem like the odds are stacked against you and everyone around you believes differently than you do, maybe you've had this experience in like a college classroom or in a workplace meeting where someone's just venting about the news and you're like, everyone's agreeing with them and I believe the opposite and I don't know what to say. It may seem like it's four against one or 30 against one, but in the grand scheme of things in the body of Christ, we are never alone. The church will always persist. As it says in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always until the end of the age. The church will always be here until the end of time, which means the body of Christ, a group of believers. No matter how small that group may get, we will never be one against four on our own. Two against three. Three against two, whatever it might be, but never alone. That's how I would interpret those numbers. Other thoughts? So I think as we read through this passage, a couple uh, points of reflection, some things we've already touched on, but some things for us to pay attention to this week. First is in this first verse. I have come to set the, the earth on fire and how I wish it were already blazing. Fire has a tendency to spread. You might use the word contagious. In a COVID-oriented world, that's probably a negative word, but still, is our faith contagious? There's this um, um, acronym that, if you're familiar with FOCUS, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, people who work for FOCUS, they're missionaries who are kind of stationed at colleges to help teach people about the gospel and uh, invite them into like Catholic community. They live their, their life by the acronym FACT, F-A-C-T, um, that they are called to be faithful, available, contagious, and teachable. And contagious obviously means with their faith. And so does that describe us? You know, is our faith like a spreading wildfire? Are people picking up on this? Are people inspired to faith on their own? Or is our faith kind of like a smoldering candle wick? You know, anytime there's just a slight breeze, it's like, oh. Like anytime you've had a birthday party where you're lighting a candle at a picnic and you're just like, please don't go out like while we're sitting. You know, it's just like, is that your faith life? Like just that candle that's just holding on for dear life. And sometimes we're like that, right? Sometimes it feels that way. But the goal is to be that blazing fire. Is that something that we can do? Is that something that describes our faith? And if not, what is standing in the way? I think often it's fear. Fear of being judged, fear of being seen a certain way, fear of losing jobs, opportunities, relationships, whatever it might be. And Jesus warns us of that to remind us that even if we lose those things, it's not worth losing the main thing, our relationship with Jesus. Okay, so first, in that first verse, is our life blazing? Secondly, in verse 50, there is a baptism with which I must be baptized, a dying to self. Are there certain things that we are holding on to, unwilling to let die, that are separating us? from a more integrated life in Jesus Christ. Things that cause us to sin, things that cause us to hold unforgiveness in our hearts, things that cause us to be any one of the number of, of seven deadly sins, angry, proud, greedy, envious, slothful, gluttonous, whatever the other one is, um, lustful, <laughs> any of those. Are those obstacles things that we can remove, that we can look at? Are there things that we're attached to that we simply need to let die? And sometimes this is an image thing. 
It says like, well, I have an idea that my life should look a certain way. I should have X by this age. I should have this degree, this relationship, uh, this home, family, achievement, whatever it might be. And it should look this certain way. And we get this way, especially because we live in a very image catered uh, and contoured culture with things like social media and Instagram. Like every image is filtered and perfectly presented. And we expect life to be that way. And we hold on to these things. And if we're not willing to let them go, it can often be a huge obstacle to living a life of Jesus Christ. And so whatever that looks like, if it's spiritual or if it's a secular kind of desire to keep up with the Joneses, to compare ourselves to others, to always be looking outward instead of upward, what is it that prevents us from dying and letting go of those things? Letting go of things that we think define our value, our worth, our identity, our sense of meaning, that are earthly. Because all of those things are temporary, they'll all go away, we cannot take any of them with us. And so why let ourselves be burdened and weighed down by them now, if we can't have them later? Doesn't mean we just sell everything and go be a hermit. Which if God's calling you to do that, God's calling you to do that. But I don't believe that most people are called to be hermits. I believe we're called to be in community, in the world, evangelizing in the midst of the world. But whatever it is that you need to be more detached from. Okay, so that's first, is your life blazing with faith? And if not, why not? Secondly, are there certain things that we need to die to, to let go of? And then thirdly, have I made the choice? And does it look like that in the way that other people see me? Does it look like that in the way I live my life, in the way that I speak? If everyone, I say this all the time too, but if everyone from your boss to your barista found out that you were Catholic, would they be shocked? Or would they be like, yeah, that makes sense. And be like, really, that guy, are you sure? Pretty sure he flipped me to bird the other day. You know, or that guy curses like a sailor. Like, are you serious? Or, yeah, I can see that. There's something about them. And we don't do it for others. We don't do it for their satisfaction or edification, but we should live it in such a way that others are inspired to faith. Because if we're not, then Jesus should just like call us home because we're really not doing anything to build the kingdom. You know, we've already figured it out. And if we're not helping anybody else, then like, why not? Just whoop, get us right up there, you know? But if we're still here, it means that probably we're meant to inspire others to have that same faith. And they're never gonna know we have it if we don't talk about it and we don't live it. So where is that most difficult? Is it most difficult within your own family? within your closest relationships? Is it most difficult in your own neighborhood or in your own workplace? Okay, we can't come up with this idealized version like, oh yes, I'm gonna go out to a soup kitchen or to a far off country and serve people who I'll never see and who don't know me. That's easy, that's easy. But to seek forgiveness within the context of a family is hard. To try and preach gospel values to people in your family who know how to push your buttons, who know all the things that you've done wrong. And especially if you're younger, sharing with people who are older in your faith, or older in your family. Like, oh, well, you're so high and mighty. I remember when you were running around doing this. You know, acting like you're a little gangster. It's a little window into my life. But anyways. Do <laughs> more on that? No, no, maybe someday. A lot of, uh, gang-like stories from middle school. Um, anyways, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. But that can, be, that can be the most difficult. 
And yet, where has God placed you? In a family, in these friendships, in the job that you're in, in the school that you're in, in the community that you're in, in the church you're in, wherever you, like, that's where he's placed you. That's where you're meant to be on mission. Very, very few of us are meant to go from there to somewhere else and do the Mother Teresa of Calcutta thing, which is very incredible. But she herself said that if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. If you want to change the world, go home and love your family. A saint said that. Not just some lady. A saint. She knew how to do it. And so if that's a difficult thing for you, if that's a challenge, that can be something to reflect upon. So these three things. Is your faith blazing? And if not, why not? What are the things that you need to die to or detach from? And have you made a choice about Jesus? And if so, do, if that choice is yes to follow him, is that apparent in how you act and how you speak? Maybe even identifying who is one person who you intersect with in maybe a very minimal way or very closely with that God is putting on your heart tonight to say, you are the person through whom I want to work to save that soul. Who is that? Like, is someone coming to mind right now? Because if they are, that's Jesus telling you who that person is. Okay? And if not, think about it. Pray about it. But I guarantee you there's people all throughout your life. And if you just look at, at the people you come across this week through the eyes of faith, Jesus will make it known to you. The Holy Spirit will inspire within you who it is that you are being called to share that with. And how to do it in the moment. Just pray for faith. Like, I have no idea what to say to this person. Uh, is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior? Like, you know, I probably wouldn't lead with that. But, you know, like people get kind of averse to that kind of direct thing. But I think I do wholeheartedly believe the Holy Spirit will inspire you in that moment to say the right thing. And usually it's just building a relationship. Hi, how are you? How's your day going? What did you do this weekend? Oh, I went to Mass. What's that? Well, let me tell you. And just very naturally. Okay? And it doesn't all have to happen in one conversation. They don't have to reach the aha moment or the light bulb and be like, yes, I want to join RCIA. I am ready. Great, that was a good five minutes, all done, you know? No, like this can, you might just be one seed along the way and they might not make that decision for 20 more years. But we still need to be disciples who are actively out there planting seeds to grow more disciples, okay? There's no disciple who is idle. There's no disciple who is sitting on their couch eating potato chips every day and being, um, I think Pope Francis said this, being a couch potato. He wrote couch potato in like a, a church document, which I think is the coolest thing. It's like, that's not what you're called. You're not called to be a couch potato. You know, that's awesome. So whatever that looks like for you, however the Holy Spirit's inspiring you to reflect on those questions or those things this week, I'd really, really encourage you to bring that to prayer. Um, so uh, Tanner's going to make an announcement in a moment, but um, let's pray and reflect on these things. And for those of you joining us on Zoom, thank you. This is our last time with Zoom, as I've been saying. I hope you'll join us in person. And if not, this will be uh, continue to be on YouTube. But let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for inspiring us to deeper faith. For encouraging us to look at our lives as lives that need to be set ablaze. Lives that need to be willing to die to the things of this world. And lives that are lived in a full, complete choice to follow you in all that we do, all that we say. Give us the strength when that is difficult to live that out. Inspire within us a name, a face, 
of a person that we know or might encounter this week that we need to share your word with, your love with. And something as simple as a smile, a conversation, an invitation, whatever it might be, Lord. But we ask that you just let us see our life through the eyes of faith and really reflect this week on how we can follow you more faithfully. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. Bless this Bible study community. Allow it to continue to grow and be fruitful. Bless each one of us here, especially as we go into this week, seeking to live lives of faith. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.